Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Open your Bibles up to John chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 6. John 3 verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. I pray this morning, Lord, that that wind would blow through this room. Let your Holy Spirit touch every person in here in whatever way they need you to do it. I pray that you would just take your word, Lord, and let it just... Convict hearts, encourage hearts, whatever the work that is needed in each of our lives. We all need something different, and only you can provide that. Ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In May 2002, Leonardo Diaz, a Colombian hiker, decided to do some serious mountain climbing with some friends. Their goal was to reach the summit of Novato del Ruiz, which is a volcano in the Andes. But on the second day of the climb, a major blizzard hit. Diaz lost sight of his friends and soon became separated from them. And although not initially worried, the novice climber soon began to run out of rations and began to suffer from the bitter cold. And although he had his cell phone in his backpack, his prepaid minutes had already expired. With no way to signal for help, Diaz realized that he wasn't going to make it. But as he lay in the frigid snow, just waiting to die, his cell phone rang. Believe it or not, it was a phone solicitor from Bogota wanting to know if Diaz was interested in purchasing more minutes. Maria del Pilar Bastos of Bell South said, We called to remind him that his cell phone had run out of minutes. He said it was the work of an angel because he was lost in the Andes. Diaz described his location to the caller and asked that his family be notified so that they could dispatch a rescue team. The Bell South operators could tell from the sound of his voice that hypothermia had already begun to set in. And so they called Diaz every 30 minutes to keep him awake and to maintain his hope for survival. Seven hours later, He was rescued. How extraordinary. What normally might have been perceived as a nuisance call saved his life. The tragic thing is, until we come to Christ, we often react to God's call on our heart as though God was also an unwanted telemarketer. Sadly, many people will only come to his call when they realize that they are in desperate need. 
This morning, we're going to see Jesus give a clarion call concerning the need of salvation to one of the most religious men alive during that time. Welcome back to our study in the Gospel of John. We are currently in chapter 3 as we examine the famous nighttime conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, which we are calling... Okay. Look at verse 6 with me. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In verse 6, the reason this verse gives for the way that God operates should be especially understandable to those of us who understand something about genetics in that like things produce like things. For instance, a male dog and a female dog produce puppies, not kittens. Cats produce cats, horses produce horses, and people produce people. In the same way, God tells us that that which comes out of the natural man can only produce that which is natural to men, and which is, as a result, sinful. Man can produce nothing spiritual. On the other hand, that which comes from God produces only which is characteristic of God, and is therefore ultimately sinless and eternal. When we see Christ's words in this light, we see that God is here is pictured as a divine begetter, the father of all of his spiritual children. And we learn that the written word of God, together with the working of his Holy Spirit, is the means by which this new birth is accomplished. The child will inherit the nature of his parents, and so does the child of God. We become what the Bible says as partakers of his divine nature. Thus, nature determines appetite, which explains why the Christian should have an appetite for the things of God. He has no desire to go back to the foul things of the world that at one time appealed to him. He feeds on the word of God and grows into spiritual maturity. This leads us right into verse 7 where Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Back in the 1970s, the phrase born again caused a firestorm of controversy when Jimmy Carter, who was the President of the United States, said that he was born again. Unfortunately, Mr. Carter's theology and practice often turned against the Bible, and so only God himself knows the truth of those claims. Jim Jones also claimed to be born again, and yet he led more than 900 people to commit suicide by drinking cyanide-laced punch. And even Madonna said that when her daughter was born, she was born again. I'm ashamed to say that in high school, I had a Black Sabbath t-shirt with a demon baby on the front of it, and the words underneath said, born again. And so it should not surprise us that the world mocks us as we speak of being born again. And I'm sure that's what they were thinking about when somebody invented this bumper sticker. It said, born right the first time. In other words, they were saying, I don't need a second birth. I don't need to be born again. I'm fine just the way that I am. Thank you very much. They probably thought that they were being funny, and I'm sure they thought they were so much more open-minded and tolerant 
than the born-again crowd. I'm sure they thought, why should I be born again? Plus, accepting Jesus' life-giving atonement means denying the national anthem of hell sung by Frank Sinatra, which is, I did it my way. Wait a minute, Pastor Bill. Are you saying that I wasn't born good enough the first time? Well, to put it bluntly, you weren't. And neither was I. But that's just not me saying that. I'm just repeating what Jesus said. And what Jesus said isn't open to any type of negotiation. He once again left no doubt to the gravity of this when he reiterates what he said back in verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus builds on that by stressing this in verse 7, by saying, you should, by not saying you should be born again, or you may want to consider being born again, but you absolutely must be born again. Proverbs 21.2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs his heart. Consider the ways that dogs cross the road. A dog will wander into the freeway oblivious of any danger. His tail wags as he crosses the road without a thought. Cars swerve. Tires squeal. The noise is deafening as vehicles crash one into the other. Now the dog may stop wagging his tail for a moment and looks at the pile of smoldering broken cars on the highway. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> his expression betrays his thoughts as his brain doesn't realize for one moment that he is responsible for this disaster. And very much like that. When man wanders onto the freeway of sin, his tail wags with delight. He thinks that this is what he was made for. His thoughts or any repercussions of his actions are shallow. For example, he may wander off into lust and then eventually wanders onto the highway of adultery. Suddenly, a disaster unfolds before him. His marriage is shattered. His name is tarnished and his children are scarred. But like that ignorant dog, he doesn't realize for one moment that he is solely responsible for his sin. This is why we need the new birth. This is why we need to be born again. For it is the only path to new life. One moment in a dark womb, and the next moment you have become into a brand new world. One in which you th see things that you have never seen before. You are aware of things that you had not been aware of before. In the new birth, Jesus becomes real to you. The Bible becomes alive to you. You see things in a different light than you have ever seen them in the past. And yet, many people who claim to be Christians still see things as a way that they have always seen them. Jesus is still just a historical figure to them, not one with whom they have an intimate relationship. But there is a new world you live in if you have truly 
been born again. So let me ask you, are you a Christian? What about your life? Unfortunately, it's possible to live a Christian life that is so much like the life of the world that he will never be able to, on the basis of his life, point anyone to the Lord. Does that describe you? Ask yourself, has my life been changed? Can I point to anything that will hold up as tangible evidence for myself and others of the power of God through Jesus to transform my thinking and my lifestyle? But I need to address something here. Does being born again mean that I will never again struggle with sin? And what if I do? Am I still saved? There are many things that separate true Christianity from other religions, but the most important is that Christianity is not a works religion. All the other religions or systems of religious thought known through history have at their base some system of good works by which the followers of that religion earn merit. Christian, Christianity insists, on the other hand, that we cannot earn anything, that all, could, that all that could possibly be done has already been done for us by Christ. And that salvation is entered, therefore, not by doing anything, but by just receiving God's gift. You see, religion is man reaching up to God. Christianity is God reaching down to man. Even the Christian life grows out of that initial and complete accomplishment by the Lord Jesus. So I guess a question might arise. Then what happens to the old fleshly nature when a person is born again? Well, that person receives a new nature. She has a new spirit. The new spirit is the offering of the Holy Spirit, which is the offspring of God. But what happens to her old nature? What happens to her flesh? There are some who teach that the flesh is eradicated, or if you prefer this terminology, that the flesh is transformed so it is no longer sinful. But this text refutes that as well as does just the practice of living. When you become a Christian, you may think that all your struggles are now over. And you may be disappointed and even discouraged to learn that in one sense, the struggle is only beginning. Because now you have not one nature, but two natures battling inside you. Before you were unhappy, but at least you weren't schizophrenic. But now you are struggling. If this has been your experience, you must not despair. Nor must you think that because the old nature is apparent, you are therefore free to keep sinning openly every day, allowing the old nature to dominate. On the contrary, you have been given a new spirit and a new nature precisely so the flesh will not dominate. The Bible tells us in Galatians 5.16 that we are to live by the spirit, for then we will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? It is primarily a matter of bathing ourselves in prayer and then walking in obedience to what the Scripture teaches. 
So let us place ourselves in circles where the life of the Spirit may grow. Let us read the Bible. Let us pray. Let us make Christian decisions. When we do this, we will find ourselves increasingly victorious. And the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, kindness, and self-control will all begin to grow in us. Let's get back to Nicodemus. The implications of Jesus' words for Nicodemus were staggering. You see, all of his life he had diligently obeyed the law and the rituals of Judaism. He had joined the ultra-religious Pharisees and even became a member of the Sanhedrin. Now Jesus called him to forsake all of that and to start completely over and to abandon the entire system of works righteousness in which he had placed his hope and to realize the human effort was powerless to save. Now, although Jesus' words were based on Old Testament revelation, they ran contrary to everything Nicodemus had ever been taught. For his entire life, he had believed that salvation came through his own external merit. And I'm sure he found it exceedingly difficult to believe otherwise. Aware of this astonishment, Jesus said to him, Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. And that verb translated must is a very strong term. John used it elsewhere in his gospel to refer to the necessity of the crucifixion. Now describing the consternation that Nicodemus must have felt, R.C.H. Linsky writes this. (coughs) Excuse me. He says, Jesus' words regarding the new birth shatters once for all every supposed excellence of man's attainment, all merit of human deeds, all prerogatives of natural birth or station. Spiritual birth is something one undergoes, not something one produces. As our efforts had nothing to do with our natural conception and birth, so in an analogous way, but on a far higher plane, regeneration is not a work of us. Linsky finishes by writing, All on which he has built his hopes throughout a long, arduous life, here sank into ruin and became a little, worthless heap of ashes. What a blow that must have been to Nicodemus. His being a Jew gave him no part in the kingdom. His being a Pharisee, esteemed holier than other people, avowed him nothing. His membership in the Sanhedrin and his fame as one of its scribes counted for nothing. This rabbi from Galilee calmly tells him that he is not even yet in the kingdom. Let me finish verse 7 by drawing a contrast from the life of Nicodemus and let us know what it means to be born again and what it doesn't mean. First, being born again is not about human efforts. If anyone deserved eternal life, then it would appear that Nicodemus had all the right qualifications. But this story reminds us of four simple truths. And if you take notes, they are all alliterated with the letter P. One, our position in life will not save us. 
Nicodemus was a man of the Pharisees. He was one of the 70 who comprised the Sanhedrin. This was basically the Jewish Supreme Court. But our position in life cannot save us. Being born again is not about human effort. Number two, popularity does not save us. Nicodemus was well-known and popular. He was recognized as a leader. Parents would no doubt point to Nicodemus and tell their children, there's a good man. Be like him. He's a good role model. He was popular. But being born again is not about popularity. Number three, prestige does not save us. Jesus identified Nicodemus as the ruler of the Jews. He was the spiritual advisor, the religious guru of the day, the one who spent his life studying the scriptures. But prestige means nothing. And finally, piety does not save us. Nicodemus had plenty of knowledge about religion. He knew the difference between right and wrong. His first words to Jesus back in verse 2 were, We know. Yet the reality is Nicodemus really didn't know. He was religious to the core. He obeyed the law to the very letter. He fasted, prayed, and studied the scripture. He had all the external things right, but he was still lost. You see, we can go to church attend Bible study, pray, give money, and do all the things the Bible says to do. But if we do that with our heads and not with our hearts, then we will still be lost. Now let's look at what being born again does mean. I've alliterated these three with a letter S. One, the new birth is a spiritual birth. It is not physical. Being born again means being born from above. Jesus said, unless we are born again, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Two, the new birth is a sovereign birth. In other words, it is initiated and controlled only by God. He will compare it to the wind in the next verse. We can't see it or understand it. It's a God thing. And lastly, the new birth is a supernatural event. The new birth is not a science, not something we can place in a test tube and examine. It's not some secret recipe. It only comes through the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, please. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. <clears throat> we cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone. <coughs> Sorry, guys who is born of the Spirit. It wouldn't surprise me that at, right at this time, if a breeze blew through the trees, and Jesus used it to illustrate this truth. Jesus compares the Holy Spirit to the wind. In the Greek language, the corresponding word is pneuma, from which we get words like pneumatic and pneumonia. The first word refers to any tool that is operated by air, such as a pneumatic drill. The second refers to a disease of the lungs. When Jesus used this symbol, Nicodemus should have really remembered Ezekiel 37. After showing him a valley of dry bones, the Lord asked Ezekiel, How can these bones live again? 
I don't know, answered Ezekiel. The Lord then instructed him to prophesy to the bones. Ezekiel did so, and then the bones connected together to form lifeless human bodies. Then the Lord told him to prophesy to the wind, or ruach in the Hebrew. Ruach is also translated spirit. Ezekiel did so, and these dead bones came to life. They were, in essence, born again. And in many ways, the nation of Israel, including Nicodemus and his fellow council members, were dead and hopeless. And in spite of the morality and the religion of the people, they too needed the life of the Spirit. In many ways, the, the wind is mysterious. The wind may be described easier than it can be explained. And so the Lord, wise, the Lord wisely used the wind to explain the working of the Spirit. The wind is an unpredictable phenomenon that everyone is acquainted with. It has the far-reaching potential of affecting everyone that lives upon the earth. The wind cannot be controlled. It blows where it wishes. And although its general direction can be known, where it is coming from and where it is going cannot be precisely determined. Nevertheless, the wind's effects can be observed. The same is true in the work of the Spirit. His sovereign work of regeneration in the human heart can neither be controlled or predicted. Yet its effects can be seen in the transformed lives of those who are born by the Spirit. Like the wind, the Spirit is invisible but powerful. And you cannot explain or predict the movements of either the wind or the Spirit. And yet how many times have you heard people say, if I can't see it, I won't believe it. That's really a silly thing to say. Because it would be like standing in the middle of a hurricane, trees being uprooted, homes being destroyed, and we say, if I don't see the wind, I don't believe in it. We don't see it, but we sure do see the effects from it. And there are really all kinds of things in life that we can't see, but we believe in. We can't see gravity radio waves, or love, but we all believe that they exist. That's how it is with being born again. You can't see when the Spirit enters into a human life. Now, the big difference between spiritual and physical birth is you can immediately see a physical birth. Of course, now you have fathers in the waiting room or in the operating room videoing everything with their iPhone so it can be posted on Facebook four minutes later. As I told you last week, I have a very weak stomach. Please never send me that video. So like the wind, there is a mystery associated with this. Jesus said, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Later the Apostle Paul would say this, the man without the spirit does not accept things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It's like the man born blind in John chapter 9. When questioned by the authorities, he said, I can't explain it. I just know one thing. I was blind, but now I see. And that is the testimony of everyone who has been born again. 
I can't explain how God can transform a sinner into a saint. I just know that I was lost, and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was on my way to hell, but now I'm on my way to heaven. The new birth is supernatural. It is beyond human explanation. Likewise, a wind can come in the form of a tornado and move down a street and touch every house, but leave one completely untouched. The same thing can happen in a church service. When two people are sitting in the exact same row under the same sermon, one is convicted by the Holy Spirit and is brought to repentance and faith in Christ, but the man seated next to him remains untouched and unmoved and leaves lost and apparently carefree. This is the unexplainable mystery of the sovereign work of God in salvation. But in the same way, when a person is born again by the Holy Spirit, you don't see the Holy Spirit enter into their body, but if God's Spirit has entered, you will begin to see the effects of that. In the practical experience of life, the inward change that occurs after the new birth will be manifested in its outward expressions. A drunk will become sober. A thief will become honest. And a liar will love the truth. A prior proud religious person will have a deep sense of his unworthiness apart from God's guiding presence. You see, the Spirit is always moving us out of darkness and into light. He's always bringing the light of Christ into our darkness and exposing the ways of darkness. That's why, as this takes place, we find old patterns of behavior abhorrent. That's why we want to change. That's why we desire to have a new kind of life. We want to move out of the darkness and into freedom, peace, and joy that comes from living in the light. The Spirit of Christ is, re, is reproducing that within us. This is what Paul was referring to in Galatians 5 when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit again. These are the qualities that mark the life of Jesus. They are the qualities that mark the way that Jesus related to other people. They are the marks of his character, and the Spirit wants to reproduce that character into every Christian in here. The problem is... Sometimes, because we still live in the flesh, we may sometimes wonder if the Spirit is truly living in us. Because sometimes our emotions and our feelings will lie to us. In his book, Fit for the Master's Use, F.B. Meyer gives us great insight. He writes, I do not believe in the eradication of self, but I believe... When we come to the cross, to Jordan as it were, we put the cross, the death of Christ, between ourselves and our old past life. We pass through the Jordan in our own experience when we unite ourselves with Christ's death and are planted with him in the likeness of his death. After that, we stand in the land of Canaan. At Kadesh you looked over, but now you're in, and yet you may not feel much. When you awoke, you thought you would feel joy, but perhaps it is not so. You are quiet and still. Never mind. Don't you know that a man may cross the equator and not know it? 
Without emotion or passion relying upon the Holy Spirit to make your reckoning true, you have passed Jordan. You are now in the land of Christ. He is the land of promise. As we finish up this morning, 200 years ago, rational people would have mocked you if you spoke of the possibility of massive jumbo jets floating through the air filled with people. I mean, any sensible person knew that massively heavy objects couldn't possibly float through the air. They knew this because of an invisible law, the law of gravity. But we know now that it is possible because there is another law that can overcome gravity. When an object moves at a certain speed, it supersedes the law of gravity and enters into another invisible law, the law of aerodynamics. And while gravity still remains, a heavy object can now break free from its influence. You know, just like that. The Bible says that all humanity is subject to an invisible law, the law of sin and death. The law tells us that the soul who sins will die. And universal death proves this law to be a reality. However, because of the cross of Christ, we can break free from the law of sin and death. The moment we repent and trust in Christ, we move into the influence of another invisible law. This is the higher law, the law of life in Christ Jesus. And it's simple to prove. You need only this morning to step into the plane of salvation to experience it. Father, I do thank you. Your word is true. I thank you that you did send your Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and to also convict even Christians when we blow it, Lord, and also to comfort us when we need comforting. Whatever we need, Lord, your Spirit is able to do. So, Lord, search every heart within here. Let us be honest with ourselves and let us do business with you. Right before we have communion, Lord, you should let each man examine himself. So, Lord, I pray that you would just give us just a few seconds just go over our life. And if there are things that we need to change, let us make those things right. And then let us take communion joyfully. Ask these things in your name. Amen. <laughs> Ask Pastor John to come up.